book of 1 Kings and chapter 3 in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 3. You weren't expecting that, I'm guessing, but uh, that's where I'll invite you to go first. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to keep a, to share a copy of God's Word with you. We keep some in the back just for that reason. There's a little note page looks like this. If you could grab that, that would be helpful as well as we step into God's Word together. 1 Kings chapter 3. You didn't know we were going to jump into this place, but this isn't our ultimate destination. As you well know, we will be heading for the book of Ecclesiastes as part of our ongoing study series. But this is where we want to begin today. And the biblical landscape that I am dropping us into will be known to some of us, but probably not familiar to some of us as well. The moment that we're stepping into involves Solomon at a moment shortly after the death of his father, King David, who was Israel's greatest earthly king. Solomon is David's successor. The great temple in Jerusalem has yet to be built by Solomon, so the central place of worship for the nation at this moment is in Gibeon, which is about 10 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And here's where we pick it all up at verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 3. If you'll follow along while I read for us. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and had given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? We'll stop right there for just a second. This very Renaissance period painting, painted in 1695, captures this moment that we are reading about in first kings highly stylized of course and i seriously doubt that solomon was a blondie uh, as this picture presents him but you know if you're the painter you can do really whatever you want to do but but i just give you this little moment because this was a a conceptualized idea of what first kings three was is all about lord give me wisdom Solomon asks in the midst of this dream where the Lord meets him, give me wisdom to lead your people. So verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, now do I do I according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. 
I give you also what you've not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk, if, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. It continues, but we'll stop right there in 1 Kings 3. Now, church family, I share this bit of background narrative with us just by way of a reminder to us. Solomon was endowed with a supernatural enablement that we call wisdom. A God-given ability was imparted to him to be able to see life with an extraordinary objectivity and then handle life's issues with an uncanny skill. And, of course, his wisdom has become really the stuff of legend. With this God-given wisdom, Solomon was able to rule his nation like none who had come before him and like no one who would come after him. This wisdom, this, this God-imparted ability to apply truth to life with skill and effectiveness will emerge in a significant way, hopefully, to our prophet today. So let me invite you now to follow me to the book of Ecclesiastes, which is where you knew we were going to end up eventually. Run to the right then in your Bible from 1 Kings, clear past Psalms, past Proverbs, and you will come to the book of Ecclesiastes and to chapter 7 this morning of this amazing Old Testament book that we are studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter in this season here at IBC. Ecclesiastes is the diary that Solomon kept as he went on a determined quest to answer the question, where is the greatest meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in this life to be found? However, as we have been learning and studying in this book, Solomon has been looking for life's meaning and its fulfillment, where in particular? Under the sun, that's right, under the sun. Over and over, Solomon uses that phrase to indicate that he has confined his search for a fulfilling and satisfying life to a mostly earthbound, under the sun kind of search. He leaves God out of it much of the time, desiring to answer for himself the question, can life hold deep meaning and purpose and satisfaction without God's involvement in my life? Like so many in our day, Solomon looks for meaning and fulfillment in nature or philosophy or a playboy lifestyle or, or maybe through work or through climbing the ladder of success and, and acquiring position and status. Or maybe, maybe fulfillment is found through wealth and money and, and material things. And all of these things he explores in the first six chapters of this book of Ecclesiastes, if you have been with us, you know that's where he's been going. That's where he's been looking. Eventually, he's going to discover that life cannot hold deep satisfaction and meaningful purpose without God intimately included. We were made for life above the sun, right, church family? In fact, we were made for life in the sun, S-O-N, in the sun, the Lord Jesus so what we end up hearing time and time again from Solomon and through his pen is his frustration under the sun. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless life under the sun is meaningless and it's a chasing after wind. 
We hear that over and over and over. And so what an invaluable service Solomon renders to us. He lets us look at life through the eyes of of the secular, leave God out of my life person. If you want to know what that looks like, you just need to read the book of Ecclesiastes and look at it through Solomon's eyes. He applies this God-given wisdom that he has, and he he shows us the emptiness of a strictly under-the-sun focus on life. Now, as we come to chapter 7 today, a change is in the wind. And that is obvious before we even read a word of chapter 7. Chapter 7 just looks different as it sits there on your Bible page, doesn't it? Doesn't it look different from the previous six chapters? It certainly does in my Bible. And this is because Solomon is about to change focus for a while. He's going to exchange his narrative, exploratory style of the past six chapters for a style in the form of proverbs. Short but profound statements that have to do with handling life skillfully, handling life wisely. These proverbs are like nuggets of truth that he has uncovered while digging for a meaningful life. Under the sun, he'll never find that meaningful life without God in it, but he does uncover truth under the sun. Truth under the sun because God has built truth into his world, right? He's the God of truth. He's built truth into his world. So using his God-given wisdom gift, he pushes life through a grid with brutal objectivity here. And what comes out on the other side are these proverbs, these maxims, statements of truth about the way life is and how to make living it better. That being the case, his wise insights and the resulting proverbs that he pens Well, they become very valuable to us. They become helpful to us as we seek to live well, as we do life under the sun, but with the Lord as well. Now, someone has suggested that a way of thinking about Solomon's Proverbs statements has suggested that there is a way to think about those Proverbs statements in 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 such a way that I have really related to well. They said, think of a proverb as a road sign on life's highway. Think about a proverb being like a road sign on life's highway. Now, I can relate to that word picture pretty well. Caltrans places all kinds of informational and directional signs alongside of the roads here in Idlewild on our mountain roads. And invariably, this weekend, there will be someone who unwisely or carelessly or maybe arrogantly won't take these road signs seriously. Hairpin curve ahead, 30 miles an hour. The signs are all over the place. But they're going to go right into that curve at 50 miles an hour like they never saw the signs. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. But those who heed the signs... Those who take these road signs seriously and act on the information that they provide, well, they're going to do fairly well as they drive these mountain roads. The man that God endowed with a greater wisdom than anyone before or after him has posted road signs for us 
on life's highway. And he's done that in chapter 7. And we will be wise if we take these road signs seriously. They are road signs to a more effective, successful, God-honoring way of living. So our approach, church family, is to, to take this seventh chapter and just work through these Proverbs and take to heart what they have to say. It would be easy to kind of just blow over them in some kind of a big generalized way, but that would not be to our profit. To rush through these, these Proverbs would be to not read the road signs. And that would not be good for us. So however long it takes, that's how long we're going to take to read the road signs well. Are you game to do that with me? All right. So with that then, how do these chapter 7 life road signs read? Well, the very first one that we come to in verse 1 essentially says, watch for falling character. Okay? You've seen the road sign, watch for falling rocks. But I'll bet you've never seen this one. Watch for falling character. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, says Solomon. Maybe your version puts it this way. A good name is better than fine perfume. To make it more contemporary, a good name is better than Chanel. Good name is better than Nina Ricci or Old Spice. Solomon Solomon is thinking here about our character, brothers and sisters. He's thinking about our good name, which is really another way of saying our character. He's talking about what we are on the inside, the reputation we have as a person, our name, which is a reflection really of the quality of our lives internally. Says Solomon, a life marked by a good name, by integrity and God-honoring virtues and values on the inside is much more precious and to be desired than a life that just smells good on the outside. Can you agree with that proverb? Sure you can. Now, we all know this principle quite well. We don't need to have the wisdom of a Solomon to get this one figured out. Oftentimes, when it really matters, we will buy a product that is referred to by its brand name. We want a brand name product. There are off-colored products. There are, there are less known, less, less familiar products out there, but we want a brand name product. Why do we want a brand name product? Because they've established their credibility. They've demonstrated over time their quality, their their durability, their functionality. They have a good name. And so we're willing to pay for a brand name product because we realize in the long run there's value in that and we'll pay extra for that brand name because they've earned that name. Solomon would say it's no different with regards to our character. He's warning us to always be vigilant to protect our character against a fall against compromise. In fact, here's how he expresses the very same truth in the book of Proverbs in chapter 22, verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than what? Than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. 
to be looked upon favorably because you have that good name born of a godly character is to be valued more than, than earthly wealth, a big bank account. What's on the outside does not account for much if, if it's not backed up by what's on the inside. So says the wisest man who ever lived. Never sell your good name for anything. Perhaps you can remember with me that time in the New Testament when Jesus had some punishing, I mean really punishing words for the religious leaders of his day. This is Matthew chapter 23. Listen to what Jesus says in in two verses out of this section. It's a much larger section, but we'll just grab two verses. He says, Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees. Now, when the God of the universe says, woe to you, that's a big deal, isn't it? That's serious stuff. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, there's a word picture. Whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says, you look good outwardly. Solomon says, you smell good outwardly. What's on the inside of us, though? Because that's what, that's what, that's what really defines who we are. Integrity, honesty, truthfulness, mercy. Compassion, justice, gentleness, peace, forgiveness, kindness, self-control, love. What's on the inside? That defines the outside. Would you agree? Solomon says protect that. Don't let that. Don't let go of that and don't, don't disregard the importance of it. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of, his, out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the what? The heart, his mouth speaks. What's on the inside comes out, and what's coming out is what defines our character, our good name. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when a new king was being selected to rule over Israel, God says to his prophet Samuel, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? He looks on our hearts. He looks on what's going on on the inside. Both God and people honor a good name. So I will ask us, church family, is this roadside important to us? Is it important? It better be important. I hope it is. Watch for falling character. That's the sign along the side of the road. It contributes to successful living. And so may we, brothers and sisters, be diligent to guard and protect our character and never sell it out for anything. Agreed? So that's the first road sign posted on life's highway, but we come upon a second almost immediately in the last part of verse 1 and all the way down through verse 4. Here's what we read. The day of death is better than the day of life, than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this 
is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. We say, wow, what a cheerful little bit of text that is. <laughs> all of these verses are pointing in the same direction, believe it or not, and all of them are making slight variations on the same theme. The sign beside this part of the road, hard times have the most to teach, so keep moving forward. Would you agree with this sign at first blush? Hard times have the most to teach, so keep moving forward. Wise Solomon observes that hard times, though they can be brutal, they are better. In fact, he uses that phrase, better, three times in this short little section of verses. Better are the hard times because they have the most to teach us. And you know what? There is something deep down inside of us, brothers and sisters, that knows this is true. We just don't like it. We don't like this truth. But we know in our heart of hearts that it's true. What Solomon says here is unfeeling, harsh, it's devoid of tenderness, but it's true. Hard times have the most to teach. So don't run from them. Move through them and learn everything that they would want to teach you. Most of us, as we go back to verse 1, are not prepared for this body block that comes in the second half of the verse. We were just talking about a good name and about integrity, and suddenly we read, the day of death is better than the day of birth. We look at that again and we say, where did that come from? How does that connect with what is just before it? The day of death is better than the day of birth? We say, what? Did I miss something? But this is just typical of the proverb genre. Instantaneous changes of direction. They're very common. You're going in one direction and boom, the next proverb takes you over here. The day of death is better than the day of birth? You know, we're into celebrating birthdays, aren't we? We love to do that. We rejoice in life. This is where we want to hang out. We want to do birthday parties. Celebrating life. And by the way, just as a teaser, we're going to be celebrating life in a really special way before our time is done today. And I'm really looking forward to that. So I'm just giving you a heads up. I've got a cool moment coming here uh, after we're done with our time in the Word. We celebrate birthdays. But oh, how we mourn death days. We try to put distance between us and those kinds of days. We keep those hard times at length in our culture. Meet with death only when we're forced to do so, quite frankly. But Solomon says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, how can he say that? Well, he can say that because his goal is not to make us feel good. His goal is to help us think and live better. So he doesn't care how brutal the statement is. Is he saying that the birth of a child is a tragedy and a funeral is good fortune? No, he's not saying that. But he is saying that for pure value, for pure benefit, death days are better. They are more profitable because... 
death or the threat of death forces us to confront the transitory, temporary, fleeting nature of our earthly lives. We are forced to deal with what is real when we confront death. It brings sorrow, it brings grief, it brings mourning, but it brings reality. No one ignores death. Each of us confronting our finite earthly life at the moment of a death, man, that forces us to ask questions like Solomon asks in his diary. What does this life really mean? Where is it going? How do I fit into it? Where does life's true purpose lie? Where is the fulfillment and the joy to be found in this life? What's after this? Heaven? Hell? Something else? Solomon knows that, as you and I know, that those are not questions that people ask at a birthday party. Right? That's not where you ask those kinds of questions. When everything is new and soft and cuddly and cooing and life is just stretching out in front, presumably without end. No. No, that's not where you ask these kinds of questions. You confront those questions in the hard times. Nor are these questions the ones that you ask at a banquet either, which is what Solomon says in verse 2. Were we to update verse 2 into our language, Solomon would be saying, for pure value, for pure profit to the individual, the funeral parlor is better than the potluck supper. That's what he says. The funeral parlor is better than the potluck supper. The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. To say it another way, 30 minutes walking amongst the headstones at a cemetery is way better ultimately for you than a day at Disneyland. Really? Really. And it's a lot cheaper too. (laughs) But, But so true. 30 minutes walking in a cemetery is more profitable to you, says Solomon, than a day at Disneyland. Why, church? Because we're forced to evaluate and assess what is really important, what really matters. Hard times, sorrowful times, death times strip away the fluff and they lead to an internal inventory taking. Now we're all familiar, I think, with those who have had what we would call a a near-death experience and who then go on to tell us about that and how that experience, terrifying though it was, how it, how it led to a radical change in the way that they looked at their life, how they, they assessed the values in their life, how they lived from that point on. They lived very differently after that near-death hard experience. The wise will not miss learning from those opportunities. Are we wise? Are you wise? Am I wise? Do we move through those hard times and learn from them or do we try to do an end run around them? That's what Solomon would be asking. There's a true story that comes out of the account of the sinking of the Titanic in the North Atlantic in 1912. A frightened woman found her place in a lifeboat that was about to be lowered into the ocean. 
And she suddenly thought of something that she needed. And so she asked for permission to return to her stateroom before they lowered the lifeboat into the water. She was granted three minutes and told that if you do not return in three minutes, we're gone. Well, she ran across the deck that was already slanted at a dangerous angle. She raced through the ship's casino, which at this point had all the money, had rolled off the tables and was all against one wall about ankle deep. All the money. She runs through all of that. She comes to her stateroom. She quickly pushes aside her diamond rings, her expensive bracelets, her necklets that was on the nightstand, and she grabs three small oranges that were on a shelf. And she races back to the lifeboat and just gets into the boat. Now, that sounds absurd to us, doesn't it? Only a short time before, she would not have chosen a crate of oranges over even the smallest of diamonds. But death, the threat of death had come aboard the Titanic. And one blast of its icy cold breath had transformed all of her previously held values. Instantly, priceless things became worthless, and worthless things had become priceless. And in that moment, she preferred three small oranges to a crate of diamonds. The sign reads, hard times have the most to teach. So keep moving forward. Don't run from them. Learn all that you can from them. They have much. As a matter of fact, church family, if you flip that little note page over, this is a truth that the New Testament affirms through the life of the Apostle Paul. He would give a hearty amen to this road sign. Do you remember the moment out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul tells us how God had permitted a severe trial to come into his life? Three different times Paul prays and, and asks the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh, as he calls it, remove it from his life. He prays earnestly, Lord, take this hard time away. Now, we're never told what the thorn is. We would call it a hard time. He never tells us what the thorn is, but it was painful and it was unwanted. And by the way, I suspect the Holy Spirit never tells us in this passage what Paul's thorn was so that all of us could find comfort and perspective with our own thorns, right? Our own hard times. So it's purposely left vague. So when he asked for the hard times to be taken away, the third time, this was God's response to Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Then I'm strong. 
in those hard times, Paul says, I will not seek to avoid them. I won't run from the painful issues of life anymore because in those times, Jesus is made manifest in my life. The Spirit of God is more free to work through me and God gets more glory, greater glory through me in those times than when it's easy. Beyond all that, Paul is is living real here. This is authentic life, not make-believe life. This isn't birthday party stuff. This is more of the, 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 the funeral home, the cemetery. The hard times are good even though they're hard. Move through them. Learn from them. And Job. The Old Testament character whose name is synonymous with pain and loss and funerals and suffering and great difficulty. He will say the very same thing, won't he? Job 23.10. But he, God, knows the way that I take. He knows exactly where I am in this moment. He knows how hard it is. When he has tried me, I shall come out as what? Gold. I will have learned what he wants me to learn. I'll be different and I'll be better. Better is the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Better the hard time because it teaches so much more. What a great sign. Do we listen to it? Do we heed it? Are we doing that even now? Especially if you're in a hard time. How are you dealing with that? Moving through it? Or trying to avoid it. Watch for falling character. Hard times have the most to teach, so keep moving forward. There's a third road sign, proverb, that I don't think we're going to have time for today. Now, that's very out of character for me, but I had already printed the uh, little note page for you. So that's why it's there, but I don't think we have time to step into this third road sign this morning. Earlier I had mentioned to you that we're going to be celebrating life in a special way and I really want to allow enough time for that to be done well. This third road sign isn't going anywhere, by the way. So it's, it's, it's going to be valuable for us not to rush through it and I, I feel like we would be rushing through it. I will tell you this, though. The third road sign is Solomon's admonition to turn into a wise rebuke. Turn in to a wise rebuke rather than turn away from it. That's in verses 5 and 6. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now, your note page gives you a hint of where we're headed with this one, which we will pick up, Lord willing, next time. But the only reason we wouldn't take this one up next time is if Jesus comes this week then this road sign will be irrelevant and we'll be, we'll be very happy about that, right? So we will get back to this road sign, I promise, unless Jesus comes and oh, Lord Jesus come, right? All right, so, so let me wrap this up by making an observation that's not in Solomon's thinking here today, but should be in ours always. And it is a wonderfully true thought. Solomon said in verse 1, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Church family, there is a whole other way to understand that statement when we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. 
Our birth into this life under the sun brings with it all of the painful, stressful, hard sorrows that just go with living in a fallen world. We know that all too well. But death indeed can be better than birth if we know where we're going when this life is done and who we're doing life with right now. If we have the unshakable assurance that when we die, we will, we will not spend eternity separated from God because of sin, but we will be with him forever in heaven because of what his son has done for us on the cross, paying our sin penalty, dying for our sin, rising from the dead, victorious over sin and death. Well, at that point, then death need not be that terrible thing that it is so often seen to be. Scripture says Jesus removes its sting and its power. Death then simply becomes the door we pass through on our way to life. Life that is more than we can possibly imagine. The day of death is better than the day of birth for the one who knows Jesus. And we do say amen. And amen. And in fact, here's how the Apostle Paul, Holy Spirit inspired, put it. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. (laughs) Better is the day of death and the day of birth when Jesus is in your life. Amen and amen. Until the day when we see him face to face, may we live by faith and tell others about Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's pray together, church.